in today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. As much as you go enjoying all of these beautiful streets of Marrakesh and so and so, if you fail to see the poverty, if you fail to see the prostitution, if you fail to if you, if you fail to see the you know the beggars, if you fail to see all of that, if you fail to see the structural issues, then there is something wrong about under, our understanding of spirituality. If you're looking for spirituality outside of the agonies of those who are agonized and the sickness who are, of those who are sick and, in, and, and the injustice of those who are dealt with unjustly, then we don't know what, what spirituality is. Spirituality is at the middle, at the midst of all of that. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wired podcast. Salim here, joined by my co-host Irfan. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam, Salim. How's it going? Alhamdulillah, and joining us uh, again and returning to the podcast is our dear uh, Sheikh, Sheikh Hassan Al-Dachab. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi ta'ala. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, Sheikh. It's great to see you. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So uh, we, uh, we're uh, honored to have Sheikh Hassan again with us on the podcast. Uh, we had very good response to his previous appearance on the show where we were talking about suburban Islam. And in our previous discussions at times with Sheikh Hassan, one, another topic that, that uh, you, Sheikh Hassan, have been, have been talking about is this concept of liberation theology. And uh, I guess to start off, just to maybe give an overview of what liberation theology is at least popularly considered to be, you know, liberation theology is typically understood to be something that's a, a Christian phenomenon, um, especially from Latin America, um, which focuses on um, concern and concern and helping the poor as well as helping dispossessed peoples, disadvantaged peoples, political liberation for oppression of oppressed peoples, basically. And that has taken a, a variety of forms, but the basically emphasis has always been either social concern for the poor and or political liberation of oppressed peoples. So that's one element of what we typically conceive of liberation theology. And then there's another element that is of, often also influencing it and in, in how it's pop, popularly known, and that is this Marxian socioeconomic um, thought, um, and and that goes along with the, the the social concern for for the poor. So that's one one side of it, and then on another side, there I I'll, I'll just relate a story that I heard of um, of a of a sheikh who was um, in one of the countries during the Arab Spring, and um, they were going out forth and protesting as well, and uh, there was this articulation of this this message with an Islamic theme to it, and someone asked the sheikh, um, "Is this a theology?" for of uh, liberation for Islam. And so the Sheikh responded, he said, Islam is a theology of liberation. So you have this description of what this Sheikh was talking about, and then you have this other side of which, how I introduced it, of this very um, Christian or Marxian type of, uh, of idea of, of liberation theology. So I, to start off, I'd like to hear what your concept of, a libera- of this liberating theology is, and um, you know, reconcile these sort of two different ideas of what it is. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, this is a very dear topic to my heart for multiple reasons. First, because I come from uh, an oppressed country and I've seen what oppression does to people. Um, it's it's uh, very well known that a lot of young Moroccans throw themselves to the sea on a daily basis, trying to find a better future in Europe. Just because of the situation in Morocco, like a lot of people are romanticizing the, the situation in Morocco, and people are great, and you know, you find wali every on every corner, and so on and so forth. And people that go to spiritual tours to Morocco, but they fail to see the agonies of people and the, and the and the poverty of people and the injustices that are perpetuated in there. And then sometimes, a lot of times, in the name of Islam, and a lot of times with the with the help. Of, of an elite that we call a scholarly elite. And um, so this is a very dear topic to me, just and also because and also because um, because the human um, because the human experience is not is it this is a shared heritage. This is a shared heritage of, of humanity. So um, anything that in anything that re-emphasizes some of our very, very um, foundational principles of Islam is something to be celebrated, is something to be talked about, is something to be, um, is something to, to be um, uh, welcomed. And, and that's, that's where I'm coming from. So th- there, is, there is a caveat in here and something that's a, a very methodological issue in here. 
And and the methodological issue is that when we say Islamic, you know, Muslim theology or, or Islamic Islamic liberation theology, or or how does um, how does a Muslim liberation theology look like, or something like that? It's, at the back of this assumption, there is a premise, and that premise is that we have to follow, or there is there is a pattern that has been made, or a path that has been taken by the by the the Christian um, by Christianity that everybody has to go through, everybody has to pass by to get into the the promised land of justice, or promised land of democracy, or promised land of 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 uh, of um, you know. Uh, Peaceful social interaction, for example, um, and I, I really, I really don't don't see it this way. So I don't see that this is some this is a model that we have to go through the Western experiences or the Christian experiences to go where we have to go, where we where we want to go. That, that's not what it is. So the purpose of invoking this is to is to to tell people that look, listen, humanity is paying attention to certain ideals in our deen and celebrating them way better than we are. And this is time for us to start enacting all of those beautiful theologi theological premises in our deen. And we'll talk about those, and we can, we can talk about those. So that's the, that's the caveat that I wanted to mention. Liberation theology is, liberation theology is, yeah, I agree, it's embedded in Islam. Islam was about to liberate. Sidna, well, the Sahabi who went to, to Persia to preach Islam and to talk to, the, to talk to the king of Persia at the time, he said that God had sent us to liberate people from the sovereignty of the humans or the created, the, from the sovereignty of the created to the sovereignty of the creator, and to the mercy of the creator. So that, that sense of liberation is always there, has always been there from day one. As we always say, in the ear of the people like Bilal, like Suhaib, like Ammar, like Yasir, like Sumaya, the disfranchised of Mecca, of Mecca, the very um, the poor and the destitute, the vulnerable, none of the, theolo none of the theology, none of the Tawheed would have made any sense to them, or had made any, they wouldn't have made any connection with the Tawheed if it did not speak to their, to their situations as disfranchised people, as people are vulnerable. And the Meccans would not have felt any threat of Islam if it did not address the actual status of the, the haves, of the elite. And so it would have been, it would have been a promenade in, in, in the religion, just like, you know, yeah, I got one God, sure, sure. But what are the ramifications of that? The ramifications of that is that you're equal to your servant, you're equal to your slave, and that slave... You're not, you're not actually his master. God is his master. And you, you both have to, there are laws of God that you have to follow. And that's what theology is. You know, theology, yes, it's the science of studying God and the nature of God, the characteristics of God, but also the laws of God and the government of God, the government of, of, of how God wanted to be and so on. And if we separate this from Islam and we think of theology as just this really, um, you know, creed that we memorize and that we study, and this all of this th this intellectual, uh, you know, difficult or um, difficult uh, intellectual journey. Um, then, then we empty Islam from its core, because at the end of the day, Islam is about the betterment of the human being. It's not just about salvation; it's about liberation from day one. Bilal would not have come to Islam if he did not speak to the fact that he's equal to his master. And that's, that's, that's foundational in our deen. You look at the Meccan period, all the Meccan period, all the Meccan period, there is no time in which God speaks about himself except that he speaks about a social injustice, tied up. So Tawheed in our eyes should not be that just very separated thing, no. It always, any surah, any, any, any time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about a theological issue, if you will, issues of Tawheed or to, to issues of Akhirah or issues of, they're always, they're always connection to the poor. Right there, right there, right? So you have the one who denies religion and denies the oneness of God and at the same time it have social and political ramifications which to denigrate, oppress the poor, the orphans, the widows, and so. So I don't, I don't see, um, I, I see talking about liberation theology as a springboard 
to address issues about our own theology. And do we have issues in our theology? Yes, we have a lot. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk about it. So the critique, I think, that would be more um, forthcoming from folks would be that, well, Sheikh, that sounds great, but it looks like you're trying to change, modernize, or uh, bring something into the religion because we're using this word theology, which can sometimes accurately or inaccurately be depicted as being aqidah. So people may face the idea that, look, oh, this is what the school of the Asha, you know, like the Ashari say this, the Mataridi say this, or, you know, you sound like you're uh, a Karajite or something like this, or what, you know, these revolutionary uh, thought patterns that existed in the early period of Islam. How do you combat those notions so that you can forward the conversation with your fellow Muslim who is still very suspicious and reticent, to a fault maybe, of trying to uh, bring forth issues of concern. Because all of us in here would be you know, like remiss if we didn't feel that there is a lack of prioritization of poverty uh, within the American Muslim experience, for sure, but maybe even on a global level. That's not to say there's not great or- organizations. That's not to say there's not a charitable spirit in the, in the Muslim world. There obviously is that, but it would seem that when we get to these discussions, because they are so closely associated with political thought, and we've only seen the, like, like this liberation theology as a kind of, uh, um, you know, as a kind of a religious mask, if you will, for Marxism in parts of the world. Um, you know, liberation theology is not just limited to the Latin American experience. It's been brought into the black American experience, but also even in the Palestinian experience amongst some of the Protestant like Christians there. How would you then explain to someone who's a critic, you know, as you eloquently have done so, that this idea of pride of the poor is part of the original Islamic message, but how would you even go further to explain to them what that actually entails? Because it seems to me, when you mention the verse of the Quran and what Allah is trying to tell us, that, look, if you deny me, if you deny, if you deny your maker, there's an attitude that's built into that. And that also means you denigrate your fellow man, you know, like based on wealth, your status and this kind of, but in this era of narcissism that we find ourselves in, I find it very difficult to talk to people who are more concerned about their Instagram likes than about doing something very selfless without getting any applause for it. Very, very good questions. Let me, let me uh, unpack it. All right. So the first thing that, that I want to say about this is that, you know, liberation theology came from Latin America. Uh, the, the most eloquent articulation of that was the book of it's called Liberation Theology, or Theology of Liberation of uh, Gustavo Guterres, a Peruvian um, Dominican priest who who witnessed um, with a lot of well, a lot of uh, Jesuits and, and other priests in and the Catholics in in South America, in Peru, in Peru, in uh, Peruans, Argentina, in um, um, you know all the the time, the sixties, the late fifties and sixties and 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 early seventies where. Um, th- there was a clear American hegemony on the on those societies, economic, 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 and political, and otherwise. So we would choose their uh, their, their leaders for them, and we uh, we made their economies as satellites for our economy, and it serves our economy rather than rather than they have their autonomy. And the church, for as long as it lived, from time immemorial, always sided with the haves. Always started with the with with the rich, and always made a you know always has been a church of the rich most of the time. Now, when that when that uh, when that shift in the mode of production happened after the you know in the sixties and seventies from the peasants from a peasant agricultural society to industrial society in Latin America, there was a huge shift in there was a huge level of injustice, a huge level of imbalance in society. You find the poor completely at destitution and denigration and so and poverty that is extremely uh, flagrant and on your face. And at the same time, there is rich richness that is just beyond what you can, beyond the pale, right? That is filthy and luxury that is filthy. And, you know, there was a moral dilemma for all of these priests. Like, where do, what does it mean for us to, to be Christian now while all of this poverty in here? So, Guterres sp- speaks about a very important concept, which is the which is the 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 concept of um, the the preferential option for the poor, and what does that entail? It entails three things. So these are the three th- principles of of this theology. The first is that poverty is not just an opportunity for for charity. It is a state that denigrates the human being, that looks down at the human being, that perpetuates 
the insignificance of the human being. And it has, it's not just, it's not just an opportunity for charity just to give a charity. No, it has to be fought. It has to be rejected. And it has to be altered. That state has to be altered. The second thing is that um, poor uh, is not, poverty is not a consequence of laziness. It is a consequence of deep structural injustices that privilege some and deny some the opportunity to move on and to move uh, to move in the in the social economic and political ladder and the third thing is that um, is that poverty is not poverty is 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 a reality that that is 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 a very is not just an economic situation that's what i wanted to say it's not an economic situation it's not an it, it, it's not only an economic dimension it has a lot of other other yeah, like mental illness is a dynamic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the bigger choices, I mean, I've worked with uh, um, underprivileged uh, folks in urban environments for years. And one of the things that always strikes me is, uh, you know, that there are choices being made by these individuals, but their choices in general are very limited. Absolutely. And more importantly, most, if not all I have met, have suffered from some sort of trauma in their life or are continually being untreated for ongoing mental health issues. Absolutely. And that's, you know, just to underpin that. But the societal framework, there's a lot of things available. Um, you know, there was even a study of some folks who decided on their own to see what it would be like to be poor. And what they found was it was very easy to become poor. I mean, most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So it was very easy to do that. And at the same time, to be aware of the charitable offerings. So you know that this shelter is offering this one night or this other place is here. So you get to know the landscape. What they found more difficult was after maybe a six months to a year in to get out of that poverty. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have, we have, we have stats right now. It was all over the place. We're all over the place on New York Times and others that most of the African-American uh, middle class the children could not keep that, could not keep that status. So the children are poorer. Yeah. The children, even though they were educated, even though they were, and so. And and when you have stats like that, it tells you that the issue is not economic. The issue is the issue is is structural. The whole the, so every societal, part, I mean, societal, yeah. societal and structural. So that's 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 something about the just just little background about liberation theology, and then it has been picked up by the. By 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 the liberation by 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 the um, by Africa African African liberation movement, um, so this is the background of of the liberation theology. But the, the question about are we changing theology in here? Are we introducing an element that is foreign to the Muslim theology? I don't think that is the case. So here is it is one thing about theology that people have to understand. Theology is not is not something that is. Theology has always been, and our Muslim theology has always been a life. What do I mean by that? I mean that our theology has always been, has always been reacting to societal issues of the moment, of you know, of the moment. So, take for example, um, it hasn't been stagnant. It hasn't been just like written in stone and that's it. No, theology is a living creature. Theology is a living creature in the sense that it addresses the issue. So there are parameters and principles and precepts in the Quran and the Sunnah and the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But at the same time, there are renditions to that that fits into the, the society's issues. You go to Aqidah Tahawi, you find a lot of issues that pertains to the to the time of Imam Tahawi makhluq. So who cares about Kalamullahi makhluq now? Yeah. Who cares about mm. that mm. God's God's words are created now? We don't have that debate. That's not an issue of this is not an this is not a theological issue. You go to the, you go to to a uh, um, the Qadiri creed that has been established by the state at the time of Al Al Muqtadir Billah Al Qadir Billah, right? And you find that in it there is a statement, clear statement that we follow the Aqidah of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal. Why is that? Because all of that happened right after the persecution of Imam Ahmad Muhammad, right after the Mihna. So the problem of the Mihna is is uh, and what the what the Mu'tazilites had done to Al Sunnah and the others actually had a bearing on the formulation of the Aqidah. So yeah, so it was like a those, reaction. So maybe exactly. folks may not be aware. So the Minha is a uh, period of time during the Abbasid period where uh, the Aqidah or the theology of the state was, uh, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, a lot of times or, or, Orientalists will say that it's rational thought, but the Mutazilites also succumbed to a certain level of fascism uh, in their application of that. So scholars were rounded up and they had to attest that they believed in the createdness of the Quran, which is a longer issue than this topic. But 
just to challenge that point, though, wouldn't the idea of that be allowable in the sense that um, today a lot of times we'll be, well, you know, the Quran is created for all time, which no one disagrees with in, in mass in terms of the Muslim community. But there are intellectuals that would say that kind of, you know, stagnates intellectual thought about the theology of the revelation because you're limiting it to um, a certain prism of thought. So if it's created for all time and it's, it's, it's applicable to time, you're not giving due accordance to the context of that revelation. But it, how would you then challenge that? Because you know, this is a constant debate. You find it not just in the, social, in the sphere of social justice or people talking about the, the different types of revolutions that we've seen in the last five, ten years, but we're talking even in longer going back. I mean, it does seem that at one point to be more pragmatic, there needs to be a pragmatic theology that addresses the societal concerns of today without having to try to take everyone back to the 7th century. Is there some room for yeah, that? This is uh, absolutely. I mean, look, one of the one of our major failures, you know, ask any any Muslim right now who is, who is a concerned Muslim, who is a learned Muslim, name five theologians from the Islamic, from <laughs> the Islamic tradition today. Right. Today. Like five theologians, like two, three. People who are who are known to right, and you may not think of you might get a list of like YouTube. Uh, no, no, but these are not the, what, what we're talking. What we're like talking about, like scholarship. Can, yeah, sure. You can find you can find you know jurists. Yeah, that are plenty. Right, right. But let's say you could be a jurist and also a theologian, right? And I'm not saying just like give me the caliber of Imam Ghazali or give me a caliber, just like a theologian who are actually concerned right. about Muslim theology and the articulation of the Muslim theology in modern time. Addressing any type of issues, right? So there are, there are a lot of academics, right? There are a lot of academics in the Muslim world. There are people, but actual traditional scholars, traditionally trained scholars doing that. It's why? Because, because the theological thought has had completely stagnated for a very long time. Yeah, calcified. That's it, calcified. We, we think that, you know, that's it, you know. After certain certain times, like the, the, the early one did not leave any, anything for the for the for the later one. And part of the part of this the, the issue with the with the Islamic sciences is that um, you know we 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 started from we, that we did we never paid attention much after the after the, the centuries of the stagnation to intellectual endeavors, to the intellectual endeavors. And that's why projects like Imam Ghazali's project failed miserably. And we can talk about this and say, oh, a lot of people, are, it's like, how could, how could Imam Ghazali's projects fail? We talk about this later on, inshallah, in a, probably in another po podcast, and how the Imam Ghazali's projects were, was, was co-opted. Yes, I think that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Being, I mean, I know that our audience, some of them are familiar with who Imam Ghazali is. Obviously, as far as a Muslim theologian of the past, no one has been more translated in English than Imam Ghazali. Absolutely. But I think at the same time, we're remiss of his circumstances. Uh, we oftentimes don't hear the political circumstances that led to his withdrawal from society. It's always presented as a spiritual crisis, which doesn't deny that that may be the case. But it's interesting to, to note that once his political backer is assassinated, this is the like Nizam al-Mulk or the, the vizier of the time who was really running the state, you know, we see all of a sudden, like, Azalia has a crisis, and now he comes back, and now he's writing. When he leaves, he leaves for a very long period of time, but he tells everyone he's going to Mecca. And he went to different places in Mecca, so it almost seems like he's trying to get away from something. And then when he comes back, he's writing a, a work to reconcile things, yet in a way that is less uh, um, inflammatory than some of the writings that he was doing when he was essentially a, a mouthpiece for the state. But I think... Not to go into the Imam Ghazali's life, but to bring this up in the sense of something that you mentioned earlier about the ulama, this intellectual class of scholarship, what would you like to see? It, I mean, we've talked about this more personally, but it does seem that not only are there not many theologians in the Muslim world, those who exist may not be in touch with the Muslim community, with a thought framework that is happening in the Muslim world today. Like, you know, there was a popular... Uh, columnist who recently wrote a book, um, an article about how Muslims should become like Morjia, which is interesting that it was in a mainstream, you know, Western media publication. Uh, and I don't think most Muslims know who the Morjia are, but I think what's, what's important about these groups is not, not that we have time to go into them, but that they didn't represent huge groups of people. It's just a certain thought. And Muslim scholars then, then use that to kind of pin people down. Oh, you're you're speaking this way? You're a jami. Oh, you're speaking this way? You're this. You're that. You're athari. You're whatever you are, right? So I think as we talk about this, and audience members may not have this, uh, this kind of background, but it's important to just know 
like what's your central critique of the ulama and how do you see the role of the, the that theologian in engaging with his society as i said i mean you know the theology theology has has the ramifications that are extremely deep right so a lot of moral a lot of our moral stance are based on our theological views right yeah and if you legitimize you know here is and i'll give you I'll give you a, a case in which um, and it's this this is something that is happening right so here you are sitting with for example the the king of a country or the 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 prince of a country right and you're talking about peace as a scholar talking about peace and talking about how we promote peace right while he's still at the same time while he's sitting with you he has orders to kill your brothers in Yemen right Right, and he has orders to disturb the situation in or Libya, or to, to squash his own or to political squash opposition. His own, exactly, yeah. Yeah. and then and then you're okay with that, right? So morally, you're okay with that. Why? Because you inherited this theology of quietism, this quiet, this, right. this this quality, this this theology of just accept the status quo. Right. The issue of sta- accepting the status quo, and I'm just reading yesterday an article of, of one of our. You know, American scholars, and most of them are white. To be honest with you, most of them are are white Americans. Uh, there is nothing wrong about the. There is not. It's not. It's not. It's, this is not a racial statement. This is just to say that middle class white American Protestant who convert to Islam come with their baggage. Right. Exactly. And when they come with their baggage, they come to understand the theology of Muslim. They they they, they adapt. They adapt the quietism easily. It also should be so noted no that I think reason, age has a factor yeah. too. Like I've seen these. These types of speakers and intellectuals, public intellectuals in the Muslim community, uh, over the years, reformulate their thought to be more in line with a more socially, uh, or at least politically, um, conservative viewpoint of maintaining stability. Yeah. So, at the cost yeah. of, uh, at the cost of justice, obviously, but, but also at the cost of like people's individual dignity. But he had two questions in here that are extremely important. So, what is the issue of governance? Right, which is which is a relationship between a governed and a and a governor, for, for example, or a king or 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 a president or whatever, which is a contract. This is a contract. It has to be dealt with in a fiqh in a fiqh matter. Right. Right. What is what the question is? Why is it in theology? Why does it become something that I have to believe in? Yeah, like that I have to give, of, that I, becomes yeah. theological issues. Right. Right. And now they have the bearing and the 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 the. They have the bearing and the weight of, of, of a creed precept that I have to, otherwise I'm going to, this is something that is constructed in the environment of the late fitness. Also, so a this is, I mean, this is, I mean, and just to, I want to just bring this back to sure. specifically the, the liberation theology point of view because this is what you're, what you're, what uh, you're this is not far from it. What, yeah, <laughs> no, no, because what you're talking about is exactly sort of the criticism of people who talk about an Islamic. Uh, liberation theology, um, a criticism posed by um, Christian and Jewish proponents of their own liberation of liberation theology. Because um, if we look at the history of of Muslims vis-a-vis the, the the history of Christians, right? So in the early history of Christianity, the Christians were an oppressed minority group, right? The oppression that occurred for the Muslims occurred during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and then there was this rapid ascendancy political ascendancy of the Muslim of Muslim power. So the, the generations of scholars and, and learned pe- peoples at that time, they were al- already living under the auspices of this Islamic government of varying degrees of justice, right, over centuries, right? So the, the theology was it, that, that was constructed was naturally going to reflect this type of quietism with rulers. And that's why today when you have these this, this conflicts going on about well, we shouldn't rev- against revolution or against um, rebelling against a ruler because of the fitna and because of all these things that we have in our tradition, and that is, and, and so when you, then when you talk about chronic li- uh, Islamic liberation and theology, automatically people consider this to be something completely new because it's not something that has been, in their view, been talked about over generations of scholarship because it was al- always under the different political um, situation as uh, compared to today. And so then as a result, then you're going to have this criticism because like, oh, you're introducing something new to our theology. So, so I understand that, you know, 
intrinsically, we just think like, you know, when I first thought about this topic, I was like, of course, there's like a liberation idea in Islam. I mean, like, who wouldn't think that? I mean, yeah, you just have to look it, at the basics. Read but, and he tells you just like, you know, accept it. Just like if the governor or the leader slaps you, just accept it. You have to give mm-hmm. allegiance, even if they are bad. Yeah. Even if they are unjust, you have to give your allegiance. And this is should be, you know, appalling to anybody who read the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu should be appalling. It should be something that, like, how could how could you legitimize uh, oppression? How could you just le- legitimize, uh, you know, denigration of the human will and the human choice? How could you do that? You know, and you have that in the creed. So we have to understand the historical sources for that statement. The historical sources of that statement. It is that statement is and extremely coherent with the times. Extremely coherent with what the scholars are going through at that time, as a you know. The, the 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 fresh memories of the fitna of Sidna Ali with Muawiyah and the fresh and fresh uh, memories of the killing of Sidna Hussein and all the fitnas that came because of the governance afterwards led to what Ibn Khaldun rahmatullahi ta'ala alayhi called the 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 birth of the religion of being subdued he called it nushu udin al inqiyad he called it deen which is a religion being subdued and that becomes a religion. So quietism now is a religion, is a theology. You have to, you have to follow it. Why? To maintain what the scholars called Baydatul Islam, the eggshell of Islam, right? A unity, a sense of unity, a sense of 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 uh, sense of unity, a sense of co- co- cohesiveness, and so on. Now, to carry that message in a time where unity is now no longer there. At all, there is no unity. There is no so the circumstances that produced that 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 uh, and made and made acceptable and palatable that opinion are no longer there. So why should we cling on it like it's a Quran? It's not a Quran. Look, Islam has been disruptive. You can't you can't take that away. Yeah, disruptive. It has been disruptive. The Prophet in Allah, the in the whole positive sense of it. No, no. I'm, what I mean is that so there is a status quo in there right, in Mecca right. that has been extremely diminutive to the human, extremely denigrating to the human human being. And the Prophet Allah went over his, over, you know, and again, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, sacrificed every single thing for those who are the poor and the destitute. And you know we have the state we have the, the statement of of uh, in the seerah of the Prophet in the hadith that Ubay ibn Ka'b uh, Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn, ibn Salul came to the Prophet said to the Prophet you know what just keep those poor of yours away keep Bilal and Tahib and all of those we don't want them to be in here because they stink they smell we don't want them around and the Prophet sallallahu uh, the Prophet sallallahu refused completely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him Those poor people who are sitting there You have to be patient with them And and sit down with them And so on and so forth So the idea in here is that I'm I'm not bringing something new We have in our history A lot of beautiful models Of standing up to injustices And standing up and siding with the poor Yeah, but Murabitain in Morocco The whole whole dynasty is based on that Right Mm -hmm. You have Sidna Hussein I think that One of the most One of the the saddest things That happened to our history Is that we made irrelevant The experience of Sidna Hussein In Al Bayt It's not just Sidna Hussein Sidna Muhammad Nafs Zakiyah Yes Ibrahim Ibn Muhammad Al Hassan And so and so Look Maqatil Talibin Look at Maqatil Talibin And you see how many of Al Bayt Al Qa'imin They call them the Qa'imin Sadly, we, we translate that as revolutionary from Al Bayt. But it was not just Sidna Hussein, it was a lot of others. And by the way, Imam Malik and Abu Hanifa, they sided with Sidna Muhammad, Muhammad Nafs Zakiyah. And they sided with him and they told Imam Abu Hanifa, is reported that he said to some of his students, um, go ahead and fight with him because it's Badr as Sughra. He called it, he called the fight with Sidna, with Sidna Muhammad against the Abbasid at that time, Badr as Sughra. Can you believe that? Right, so this is a history that is not because of the weight of quietism. Right, all of this history has been put aside. Right, but this is the time we bring about, we bring about, we reclaim Sid al Hussein. This is the time we reclaim Al al Bayt. Right, so in the sense, not, not in the sense that we have to go and start killing people, not in the sense that we have to make an you know, armed revolutionaries, no, but willing to pay the price for saying that which is right rather than just having a seat with those. 
you know, kings and governors and so on, appease them and sit down with them and give them whitewash in their their their, their crimes. And this is like and more or less is, living by your principles, essentially. Yeah, this yeah. is this is extremely. This well, this is, is what's made the religious establishment irrelevant for a lot of and look, a lot of yeah. people exactly. because of that at, at alignment. Height, exactly at the heights of the bombarding of of uh, of Gaza and uh, the embargo on Gaza from the from from the government of Mubarak, you have Al Azhar coming up and saying, you know, the the Saudis and the, and the Emiratis have to start giving some of the uh, some of the zakat on rikaz, which is the 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 minerals the minerals that come out of their of their ground. They have to give zakat. On that, and in that way, we're going to we're going to free Palestine. Like seriously, you couldn't say a word to the government of Mubarak to to open the to open the gates for the poor and for the destitute in Palestine. Seriously, you can't say a word in that. Similarly, you come and you talk about, you know, let's let's uh, let's let's talk about a peace a peace, uh, um, you know, an initiative to to strengthen the peace in the Middle East. Well, the one who's sponsoring it is Abu Dhabi. Like, how could that be? How could that be? It's like you're telling me that. It's well, like I mean, you're telling so me. So just to be devil's advocate sure, here. And I, mean, and I mean that almost literally. But you will <laughs> sure. find people who will literally say, and even American Muslim intellectuals who have written on this topic or are promoting a certain uh, viewpoint on their platforms, that, oh, look at Syria. Syria becomes this uh, uh, lynch, you know, this this poster sure. child, if you will, of what goes wrong when you don't follow Sunni orthodoxy yeah. and just listen to the kings and do what they're, you know, yeah. stay in line. You wouldn't have this horrible tribulation without giving any real evidence to that. More importantly, utilizing people's sentimentality in and in, in fear to to promote this uh, the viewpoint when in fact. The Syrian struggle is multifaceted. It's very complicated. There's a lot of other issues at play, social, economic, and more importantly, the political uh, positioning of the superpowers at that time and the belief that at some point and the miscalculations made by those uh, superpowers uh, of what would happen. And in many ways, utilizing the Syrian con conflict for regional dominance in many different, uh, you know, the different actors that are involved in that. And so what happens is that we just simply say, oh, look at this. And like you mentioned, there is this huge diminishing of Sayyidina Hussein is a huge problem for Sunni theologians because they don't know what to say. Yeah, let me say one thing, just like, like get that out of my chest, right? Yeah. <laughs> if Malcolm, rahmatullahi had known this is Muslim theology, I would think they would not become Muslim. That's true too. Right? If Malcolm had known and had studied traditionally and known that this is the official Sunni views yeah. of then it's like you're coming to somebody who's oppressed in the middle of the in you know, the 40s and 50s, and you tell them, you know what, you just like accept the status quo for, in America, for example. Can you is it perceivable to come to an African American in the 60s and the 70s, or 60s and the 40s and on on 20s and and the teens and of of the of the uh, previous century, and you tell them, you know, just like accept the status quo. You could make a lot, just like the T bookers of the world. Right, and he said, like, just accept it. Let's make better our situation. Why do we give allegiance to the to the status quo and all of that? And so, what would you think of those people? How did how did they go down in history? All of those people. How did they go down in history? We elevate MLK because of a stand, a moral stand. We elevate we elevate a uh, you know Malcolm because of the universal the universality of looking for freedom. Look, I say to the world, look, Malcolm Malcolm happened, and Nelson Mandela happened. He gave us an example, and Gandhi happened. Right. And then give me give me examples of the Muslim world. Give me example of the Muslims who say, "Okay, let's stop. Enough is enough. You've been ruling for so many so for so many decades. You've been handing us from one from one son to another son to another, like the merchandise, like like the furniture in the palaces of of those guys. In is there a time where we're going to say enough? And it, should, it should, should be noted there were Muslim leaders okay. like like Sheikh sure, Ahmed sure, sure. Bamba and sure, Assad sure. in South oh, no Asia doubt. who were nonviolent, who were part of no these. Doubt. Yeah, and no I doubt. think the problem is that as Muslims we don't elevate their status enough, so people sure. don't even know who these and, are. You know yeah, who these individuals so, are. Yeah, so we put them, for example, on you know these are these are you know these are Islamists, and so these are this and these are that, like Sheikh Abdul Yassin or this and that yeah, yeah. and others. So what I'm saying is here is that yes, you bring me the oh look at Syria, look at what happened in Syria, right? Syria. You know, go back to the terminology of the of the liberation theology. They say, you know, Guterres uh, says that you know the poor, uh, the the insignificance of the poor is what do you call it? He call it. It means early and unjust death. And you have generation over generation over generation who have been who have been going through, you know, oppression, going under oppression. Their dean is is broken. Their lives are broken, and they die insignificantly. 
and they die unjustly, and they die marginalized. And these are the majorities of the Muslims. Yeah. I these mean. are the majorities of the Muslims. So you tell me that, you know, if we open the YouTubes of the world at, at a time where the American Revolution happened, everybody will say, oh, you look, you know, th th this is bloody, this is too much, this is and so. There is no time in which humanity did not pay a price for, 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 for freedom. The African-American African experience is very clear in here. South, South, Af South Africa's experience is clear. South America's experience is very clear. You have to pay a price. What I'm saying is that we don't want to move the status quo, we just want it to move by itself. And I think and that's that's yeah. extremely wrong. So here is one. There is another thing. There is the sad thing is that a lot of people are benefiting from the status quo. Some benefiting from right. the revolutions of the of the the revolutions of of America are the same people who are saying no, no, no. Let's keep the status quo, right? In the Muslim world, because at at any moment you could come with your blue passport, you can jump in here and leave people living in situations that are dire. Yeah, leave but people look, in the lurch. Like, here yeah. is here is here are a few things about the Syrian issue, right? You know. They, they, they give us this alternative between status quo and accepting it and cheering for it and championing it or the craziness or then. the craziness, yeah. the Qaeda, yeah, the, the, you know, the ISIS yeah. and so on and so yeah. forth. No, no, no. There is a middle way. There is a middle way. There is Gandhi. There is Gandhi. There is Malcolm. And there is, and there, and there is Nelson Mandela, right? Which is the path of resistance and be the clarion of resistance, peaceful resistance. And I don't care when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give the openings. When the change happens, I don't really care. But let's educate the community. Let's be the standing force of the, the, the people who carry the banner of, the, of morality, the people who carry the banner of those who are destitute and speak on them. And so even if we have to pay the price, we're not going to go and bombard anybody, but I'm going to do that which the Prophet sallallahu and all the prophets had done, resists. Resist. I don't have to put myself as a mat for the Abu Dhabi people to step on me to wash white their, 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 their face. I don't have to be standing up front of a king who is sleepy, giving him a lecture while I know the oppressions that, that are going through. I don't yeah. have to be. I don't have to be that person. Yeah. I can be with the poor. I have to be with the poor. I have to be with the destitute. As much as you praise Dubai for how beautiful it is, and I've seen a lot of people praising it, oh, how beautiful it is. It's on the prints, it's on the TV, it's on videos. You know, how, you know I was in my wife, I was listening to this, to, this, to this man. I was with my wife and a scholar, right? I was with my wife in Dubai and it's so beautiful and it's so nice, but you don't know the hundreds of thousands of that yeah, How many built. South Asian migrant how workers are there living in like essentially in squalor? Can you say a word yeah. about that? Can you say one word about that, yeah. but you're not going to be able to because all your privileges are going to be. So this is a, a shameless plug for Iman Wire, so, but we've written an article even about Hajj. You know, there's this yes. idea yes. of like, yeah. so you're going to put a sacred right, you yes. know, the right of Hajj above human rights and dignity. Yes. You go there, you see how workers are being treated. Yes. You see the way in which poverty has Absolutely. just overtaken. Um, you know, the reports are, are you know, so appalling. Absolutely. And, and we this, have to make a stand. Yeah. Well, no we have one to says make anything. Yeah, we now, have to. one thing I understand if people say, well, that's the way it is and that, that's how they do so, it, conduct business. But you're an American-owned company that conducts Hudge and no one has an outcry. And we as Americans pay thousands, 15K, absolutely. 25K for Hudge. And we think it's going to be accepted absolutely. when it's built upon the back and, absolutely. You know, of, the, of these individuals. It's absolutely. So the idea in here is that what, what, what Guterres calls the preferential option for the poor is that to... to to prioritize the poor and the destitute in every decision we make right. regarding, regarding society, regarding programming, regarding every single thing. Like think of the millions of people, don't think of the, of the one who is sitting on the chair yeah. and, his, and his elite. Think of those people and the willingness to pay the price, willingness to pay the price for following the Prophet So the critique for us is that people will say, you're being naive, you're not being sophisticated, look at the long haul, look at the ability of stability to grow economies, and they'll point to different economies around the world. And without naming countries or without naming leaders per se, not that I'm afraid to do that, but but the point is to not sidetrack that conversation to anything to do with that. But sure. you have Muslim countries who have come into the fore and now all of a sudden are seen as being a model for economic growth, yet are increasingly becoming autocratic. You have other regi uh, like regimes who have essentially... Um, you know, after a period of so-called revolution have now gone essentially back to where they were before, even with popular support. Is it that more yeah. telling that maybe there isn't the stomach 
in the in those societies because they haven't been attuned to it to really have that type of American like when we say American Revolution, but to really make those sacrifices and that struggle to evolve in their society. Those those sacrifices are made that a lot of people are making those sacrifices. There are people who are who have a complete embargo. Scholars will come have a complete embargo of the of of their states or of, of those who are at least representative of their states. Dogmaris, for example. Uh, you know, and so on and so forth. A lot of other scholars who who, ha- who have been who have been holding the fort, if you will, of free thought, of free thought, absolutely, yeah. not so, not not hindered by their yeah. uh, allegiance to the government, absolutely. And I'll tell you something. Like and I'll answer you with a verse from the Quran. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said, And if you fear poverty, that people are not going to come to Hajj. Because Allah, because Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, fanna bil, bil, bil uriyan, mushrikun wala uriyan. Like let, let, at year nine, the Prophet Sallallahu sent Sidna Ali to tell Sidna Abu Bakr, who was the leader of the of the Hajj delegation, and he told him, make sure his his calling on Meccan, let no mushrik should be make tawaf, should make tawaf in the house, and no and no naked person should be. And a lot of people were saying, like, how would the economy of the Hajj work? How would the economy of the Hajj works then? People yeah. are going to be... And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the Prophet And if you fear poverty, and if you fear economic uh, um, economic uh, residues or kind of economic consequences of that, of standing up to the morals, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you from... So an economy that is based on injustice is not a good economy. We should right. stand up to that. Exactly. So the idea is that, oh... You know, everybody's yes. Every every everybody from from that Gulf country or that Gulf country are doing well. Who are citizens? So what about the millions who are not? What about the others who are living in shacks? What about the others who are living in so on and so forth? Again, back in 2006, there was a report that one of the kings in 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 the, in the, one of the kings of the of the world of the Muslim world had tripled his holdings. Uh, you know benefits of his holdings. Right. Well, if these people are so savvy and great, let, let them have at least one percent growth, two percent growth in their own country, which, tell, which tells you that those that we defend as leaders and just give them allegiance, no matter what they do, are people looking for their own selves. But people would also right. say like that happened in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Obviously, there was wealth, income, inequality then. Uh, you have Sahabas who are poor, Sahabas who are rich. That if these individuals, kings, businessmen, entrepreneurs within the Muslim community outside of the United States or inside the United States are doing well, that's good for them, mashallah. Let them, you know, they're building the community, right? They're, they're building that infrastructure of mosques and schools and things like that. Um, but I think at the same time, it's remiss of this more self-critical element. So are you saying that essentially that when those political elite or the financial elite within, and we haven't talked about the role of Islamic finance, but you know, one has to be suspicious of this term Islamic finance when it comes up only in the 80s, only after you have this uh, horrible episode in the 70s of the oil crisis, and then there's this ramification in some parts of the Muslim world of that, and now all of a sudden we have this new, uh, you know, burgeoning business being led not by Muslim intellectuals, but more more importantly by banking institutions Absolutely. of this new Islamic finance, and Muslims falsely maybe believing that it's more just, but in the same time, it just tends to be a loophole to maintain the status quo of Absolutely. wealth income gap. Stay our fan. There is again. Um, there, there is uh, the idea that the idea that that the, just you know, you know, making the status quo better is is the goal, is is an idea that perpetuates injustice in multiple in many ways and in many ways. So the 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 most important thing for us, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, never never compromised the issue and never compromised. The position of the of the poor. The Prophet was not a poor person. The Prophet was rich, but he had chosen to be poor, and had chosen. They said, "Ni'mal idamul khal." You know, the, the the beautiful condiment. One of the most beautiful condiments is vinegar because it was the food of the poor, right? The food of the poor and elevating the taste of the poor. So the whole society is the whole society is. Is is uh, is following this taste of the poor, not the taste. And he had a, he has a, he had a golden ring, and he threw it away, and so on. And you know the the Prophet وسلم, when we talk about you know yes, there are Sahaba who are poor, or there are Sahaba who are true. There are, there are there are there are part of this part of the of the economy of the time of the Prophet وسلم, it was not governed by the Prophet وسلم, It was not governed by but but the things that the the areas that the Prophet وسلم, governed 
you could get somebody to become quote unquote middle class from day one when you give somebody a zakat, a camel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You change the person's life right away. He can rent that camel right away. He can milk that camel right away. He can he can go and carry woods from the, from a very far place and bring it. It changes the dynamic. It changes the person's life right away. It makes the person productive right away. It makes person better life's better right away. So we thinking about so we, there is a lot of room for us to be. Alhamdulillah, there are a lot of smart people in the Muslim world. There is a lot of room for us if we change the paradigm, right? And we give the example that the people who are people of scholarship give the example of willing to pay the price for that which is right, and not just to, to panter to, to to the leaders and just like follow follow the status quo. Yes, Imam Imam Tahawi said you have to give your allegiance and so. But let's contextualize that. Why did he say it? Why did he say it? Right. What is the position of, of the of, of the Sahaba? What do we say? Or all the Sahaba were all the Sahaba accepted the status quo? What about the people who stood yeah, what up? What about Abu Dhar? <laughs> what, about, you know, what about the people who stood up to, to fight against Yazid in yeah, Harra? Right. We celebrate yeah. them and go to, to Al Baqir. And there is there is Shuhada al Harra. And there more than there are more than ten thousand, you know, there were more than ten thousand Sahabi who died in Medina. A lot. Right, and they were with they were with with them. So, but isn't the fact that Muslims don't know that indicative of the fact that we have been thoroughly sure um, our our history and our intellectual history has been whitewashed to appease the ruling class so, to be in more or less aligned with stability, and that's normal. Not the not actually the, to the divinity or to true history. Yeah, that's normal. The victor always write history. The victor right. always write history, and we we know. Look, I'll give you an example. Look. Um, this is this is this is part of our history, right? Um, Imam um, Just this is this is the ways of writing history. This is a way of eradicating memories, and eradicating memories and changing things, right? Because the Prophet said, "For many whoever going to live after me is going to see a lot of things changing." And the Prophet ﷺ told us about who is going to change or things that are going to change. He told us this is all clear in the Hadith of the Prophet Imam Awza'i, like way after, right? He was he was he was an Umayyad scholar, Ta'ala He said, I was 21 and I want to take my ata. I want to take my ata. The ata is the state state uh, uh, is a state his share, the share of every believer, of every Muslim from the public treasury, right? Because of the futuh, because of the, the Baytamal. Exactly from Bayt al Mal, right? Right, right. So he went to take his, his he went to take his share, and he was told to curse Sidna Ali. And he said, part of the reason, you know, part of the ritual, right, if you will, before you take, you have to insult Sidna Ali. And how far was that from? How far was that from? We're talking about uh, we're talking about a hundred years. A hundred years. Mm -hmm. This is the time also Zainal Abidin, who exactly. Is the Great, 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 grand. He who sure. is the son of Sayyidina Hussein, essentially. Still sure. Alive, who also was a friend and, exactly. and a, a teacher of Imam Zai. Exactly. Uh, of uh, of uh, Sayyidina Zayd al-Abidin was, was, uh, was a teacher of uh, Sayyidina Ja'far um, al-Sadiq, who was the teacher of Sayyidina of Sidna of Imam Malik and, and was was also a teacher was also a, a teacher of Imam Abu Hanifa. This, that they had some debates with Imam Abu Hanifa. Right, exactly. Yeah. But the idea in here is that, you know, to kill that model, to kill that model in the heart. And he said, I did not pay attention until later. This is Ibn Abi Shayba narrated that in Musallaf Ibn Abi Shayba. He narrated that. It's like, and I astaghfirullah min that. I, uh, I, um, I ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive me from that. There was a concerted effort to eradicate a lot of things. For a lot of opposition. ideas. Yeah. A lot of ideas and, and promote the idea of, you know, you just like accept, accept the status quo and accept the status quo. What about the hadith of Sidna, um, Sidna Abu Dhar? He said there will be governors after you who are going to delay the prayers and going to take your going to take your your uh, your treasure, public treasury as their own booty of war, right? Are their booties right? They will take the money, the public treasury as their as as their uh, private accounts. Right, right, right. And Sidna Sidna Abdullah says like what what do I do when that happened? He said, لا طاعة لمخلوق في معصية الخالق. No obedience to a create a created in the disobedience of the Creator. And this model has been completely thwarted. And I'm not saying let's go and start killing people now. But let's, let's let, you know, as I said, uh, Nelson Mandela happened, 
right? And when we say Nelson Mandela happened, which means that he gave us a blueprint for us to stand up and say, we're not going to kill anybody, but we're not going to at the same time seed. Right, we're not going right. to whitewash. We're not going to, we're going to educate and educate and educate. And education gives pride to people. And education gives dignity to people. And, and the Prophet وسلم, said that the first, the first uh, thing to be taken away from the, from the believers, from the ummah, that will be destroyed, is their ability to fight. The love of the dunya and, and, and the, the hatred and despising death. Nobody wants to pay a price, right? And that's why when I say that the American Muslims, and for those all American Muslims who stand up and, and, and find it easy, find it, find it so easy to go out there and support all of those leaders, I tell them this is a dagger to all. It's, they're stabbing Muslims in their backs, basically, in the sense that, look, I would never, how would anybody feels, how would anybody in America feels if I come and I'm invited by the KKK, for example, I'm an Arab, an Arab American. If I'm invited as an Arab American, invited to a KKK event that celebrates, let's say, for example, you know, African-American children camp, right? KKK is running and, uh, running a, a, uh, an African-American uh, children camp, right? To whitewash their, their face, to whitewash their history, right? And they invited me to speak in that. If I go and speak in that, inv in, in that, in that event, That's what supporting would, what would the you ideology all... of, of white supremacy. Exactly. So you're, what you're would saying you think? What the, if there's a, 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 an educational event being sponsored by the KKK to um, essentially misinform, but also to brainwash essentially young, impressionable, minority children and to say that we're, we're we're reformed and we're good yeah you know what i mean look look at us now right? we care for the if i attend that event as an arab american what would you all think of me what would you all think of me what would the african american what would i would what, what is this equivalent to you would likely be taken down by the social media absolutely <laughs> the mob like, but it's a serious betrayal to every drop of of blood Right from all those African Americans and all those warriors for liberty and all of those people who sacrificed their lives and they went through a lot, right through a lot. And I I urge anybody to everybody to read this very beautiful work of of uh, of it's called uh, Troubling Mind about what really happened to the African American in the Jim Crow era. And this is not this is, there is no secret in there. And if I come inside with somebody who had done that to a human being, it's similar to somebody who sits down with those guys who was sponsored event by those governors and leaders in the Arab world or in the Muslim world was sponsoring event to whitewash their faces because nobody cares about what, no, all of what they do doesn't trickle to the human being, to the people in the ground. It doesn't trickle. This is to, to just cover. So anybody from here, you know, white or other who goes there. And so it, I feel the same way, just like an African-American who was stabbed in the heart by an Arab attending a KKK event. I feel the same way, right? Because it's a betrayal of the aspirations of the people. It's a betrayal of every single thing right about our deen, right? And this is the time where our scholarship should start thinking of not just giving lectures, right? But raising human beings who are, who are willing to sacrifice for their principles. So just I, I to switch gears here and, and on, on a closing point, just to, to sort of come back to the, the liberation, liberating theology part of it. Um, and as you were just you just mentioned about like you know raising individuals, one of the criticisms that um, would be made um, to Islamic political thought uh, is that as as compared to these like these Christian liberation theology is that uh, there the Christian liberation theologies focus a lot about the um, structural reform, whereas in this Islamic political ideas of government, it's very much based on the individual governor like their faith, how they are comport themselves, not so much about the political structure they're in. And what is occurring now is that now Muslims are at a time where, yes, the, the people are corrupt themselves, but there's also structural issues, structural problems. And so then the, the critique is that, and well, Muslims don't have this in their, in their tradition of critiquing and reforming structures, whether they be political or whether it be socioeconomic. So we're going to have to close on this, but as you, how, how would you, how would you like tackle that, that criticism and, and how would you implement that 
um, a structural reform, if it if needed, into this liberating theology that you're advocating. Well, you know, it's, the criticism is true. You know, traditionalists and neo-traditionalists don't care about structural, uh, uh, you know, structural uh, issues in in the, in the Muslim countries or in in the Muslim mind. To be honest with you, they they don't care about that. They care about and a very there is a very idealistic, very very idealistic view of what the tradition is, and it's a very you know. It's pick and choose which tradition, what, 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 you know, which part of the tradition, which, which age, which piece, which, which, which people, you which know. people, yeah, exactly. right? And there's just this pick and choose, right? This very idealistic, nostalgic view, romanticized view of Islam that that doesn't work. To be honest with you, that is just doesn't work, right? Uh, I think that it is time for us to not just, not just, you know, um, you know, speak about it. I think we should organize. Should organize, which which means that in the sense that you know, whoever is in a community, we should organize to build prophetic communities. And prophetic communities are are communities that come to rescue, not just not just to appease. And you know, if you're going to rescue, then you are going to be you, you have to be a risk, in a mission of rescue of the human nature, of the human of the human um, you know dignity. You know, in a very moral way, in a very connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in a very spiritual way, in a very prophetic way, then it ought to be, it had to have that what what uh, what Cornell West called prophetic fire. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prophetic fire. And look, the prophetic fire was in, in Moses. The prophetic fire was in Sidna Isa. He, he, he went to the money changers and you call that an act of, of aggression, right? But it was an act of, an anger for Allah's sake, right? And it was, it was, it was in the Prophet ﷺ and all what he had done and all of what they had done, ﷺ. Nothing angered the Prophet ﷺ more than when somebody's rights had been stepped on. And we should be enraged and aggravated with all the injustices that are that are, that are that are going on, and especially injustices that are done by people that we think should do better and should know better. So but that rage should take us to positive action. Absolutely. No, what I'm saying right. is like rage. It's not rage that goes and destroys. No, right, it's a rage right. that builds. It's yeah. rage like, you know. Well, so even like Imam Ghazali, when he's talking about the alchemy of the heart, I mean, the yeah, ghadab is, is, is part is of, that, one of those, that, those, that core element, right. one of those core elements that's translated into, you know, that, of the positives of it. Right. The po- it's translated into action to correct Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I think Sheikh, like you, we've covered a lot of ground. I think we went from Saint Hussein. We talked about Latin American roots of uh, liberation theology. We've tackled the critique of uh, state-funded or state-sponsored ulama, which has plagued Sunni Islam since probably the Abbasid period. So you have a lot of. We've covered a lot of ground, but I think one of the things also to think about also is just as we close out here um, is that they have always been voices in the wind, so to speak, who have critiqued or tried to modify the viewpoint. And I think one of the issues that's really interesting to me is that whenever you have these Sunni writers writing in this time period throughout history, they're looking at ideals that are rooted in something greater in a, in a principle. So when Imam, like we mentioned, the Aqam Sultaniya, which is a book on governance by Imam like Marwardi, we talked about Imam Ghazali's writing, which he actually named after the Caliph at that time, which is about governance, which is interesting. They all talk about ideals that were not actually being followed at that in their own time. In, in some way, that seems to be also room for a level of resistance, albeit intellectual, and maybe under, to a certain extent, under the duress of being, uh, you know, harassed or whatever, or, or controlled by the state. And I just wanted to think it would be great to have a future conversation about how it is as Muslims to live by these principles, you know, to, to live uh, with the idea of not only being, um, you know, woke, if you sense, in the sense, but if you're woke to the injustices around you, then you're also now propelled and compelled by your faith and your convictions to do positive, good actions in the world. You know, I agree with you, Steph, and I would say the following, just as, as, a, as, a, as a closing statement. Um, you know, the political thought of the Muslims is, and, and I know this is a value judgment, but, you know, as you read it, it's one of the most, is the feeblest and the weakest part of the Muslim thought. It's uncreative and it's apologetic. And you can see that the, the, they're torn between the ideal and the realities. And they try to legitimize the realities with their eye still in nostalgic towards the ideal, right? And you couldn't find more. You know, it's not in Ahkam Sultaniyah of Mawardi, you'll find it in Al-Ghayyati of Imam al where he is still, his, his, 
has a severe critique of al-Mawardi, severe critique in al-Mawardi, in al-Ghiyathi of, of Imam Jawaini. And he is, you could see him torn between that, the, right. between the, the prophetic ideal right. and the status quo that he can't, that he can't, you know, can't he, can't, he yeah. can't shake, right? Yeah. And at least he expressed that ambivalence and he expressed that, that he expressed it and you could see it, you could read it, right? Um, Imam Mawardi rahmatullahi ta'ala alayhi apologize and apologize and apologize and so on and it became it became it became and I understand why yeah. I understand why I, I have complete understanding I'm not looking at, down to them in any way I'm not in a position to do that I understand why they have all the reasons to do that right but we don't right we don't have the same reasons and that's why we have to think of bringing the prophetic the prophetic model of of prioritizing prioritizing the poor prioritizing the destitute and, and fighting for them and feeling offended of the human conditions that are denigrating that's where the anger comes from the anger that is a positive anger comes from the fact that you feel that your humanity feels offended that you can't just look you can't just turn your head around on situations like situations in i don't know and situations of palestine situations in egypt you know, situations in, in Morocco, situations in so as much as you go enjoying all of this beautiful streets of Marrakesh and so and so, if you fail to see the poverty, if you fail to see the prostitution, if you fail to if you if you fail to see the you know the beggars, if you fail to see all of that, if you fail to see the structural issues, then there is something wrong about under, our understanding of spirituality. If you're looking for spirituality outside of the agonies of those who are agonized and the sickness who are of those who are sick. And, in, and, and the injustice of those who are dealt with unjustly, then we don't know what, what spirituality is. Spirituality is at the middle, at the midst of all of that. And um, I'll leave it at there. Well, that's a good note to end on. I'd like to thank Sheikh Hassan for uh, joining us again on this uh, very illuminating discussion. Thank you, Irfan, for joining us again. Oh, thank on you, Salim. It was on, great. On the podcast. And thank you to listeners again for joining us for another episode. Uh, again, if you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, be sure to leave us a five-star review. Um, share the podcast with um, whoever you think may benefit from it. All that really helps uh, extend the podcast reach to a, a broader audience. And uh, give us your feedback at uh, imanwire at elmedinainstitute.org. Uh, again, we hope to see you again at the next program. Until then, assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you. Awesome.